What are we going to do with Nehemiah 12? Don't you want to know? This wonderful section on the worship of God's people who have been called to Jerusalem to now repopulate God's place through the service of faithful priests and Levites. What in the world is going on here? I'd like to begin with a quote, a tweet. I don't twit or tweet, but I came across this this week. It's from a pastor in Texas. See, I'm equal opportunity. Richard Caldwell. Speaking to the issue of compassion fatigue, that is that there's so much stuff coming at us all the time now from everywhere that there's no possible way we can handle all of it. And the persistent low-grade anxiety many of us experience due to our perpetual access to information, Pastor Caldwell says the following, could it be, could it be maybe that God didn't wire us to carry Every event taking place in every part of the world at every moment as if it were ours to carry? Could it be that technology and the persistence of information has produced a faux omniscience? That is a fake we think we know everything and a faux omnipresence such that it is actually doing more harm to mankind rather than helping it. Just a thought. He asks, oh yeah, hand clap. Man, get some amen, some hand claps. We can do that here. I know we're Presbyterian, but let's not turn off the motion sensor, okay? <laughs> Folks, we live in a, in a worrisome world. We do. So what does it mean to worship in worrisome times? And what does Nehemiah 12 have anything to do with that? Perhaps we should start here with our own souls. Because church, as we like to say, is a place where we get to be honest we get to be honest. We don't have to have pretense. Thank you, Jesus. We can be really honest about who we really are. He knows my name. He knows every tear. If that's true and we're that free, then we can ask the question, do you, do you ever feel it? Do you ever feel anxious? Or maybe have you started to feel more anxious and worried during this very strange and isolated time that we're in? Do you deal with fear? Has fear snuck up on you in ways you haven't expected? Does it wake you up in the middle of the night? If COVID, I think, has shown us anything, it's, it, it's undermined deeply many areas where we thought, you know, I'm pretty good here. I'm pretty much in control. I don't worry about toilet paper. I don't worry about steak in the store. I don't worry about supply chains. I don't worry about China. It's all going to keep working. The cogs turn. And, and now... Maybe in, in many things, we're just not so sure. So I bet you do. I bet you struggle with worry and anxiety from time to time over the course of your life. I bet you do because I know that, that I do. And this week has been interesting. I've gone through seasons during this, this time of plague, some more confident than others. And yet this week, I woke up. I felt good. I was doing great. As usually, my daughters want to speak about 10,000 words to me before my first cup of coffee, so we have to put the kibosh on that. Coffee first, then they may unleash the kraken, okay? And once the coffee has been had, you know, I'm usually doing okay. Go out on my porch, enjoy not the sunrise, but the sun has risen hours before. Enjoy my time. And all of a sudden, I just started to feel this 
heaviness, kind of just this feeling of, of dread. Just what Pastor Caldwell was talking about, this low-grade anxiety. And I'm sitting there going, what the heck's going on? I, I'm doing okay. I mean, I didn't get a crazy email. I, it's, just, it's just there. And several researchers have commented that in times of pandemic or war, this, this cloud of anxiety is a common thing for entire societies to experience together. I found myself like the psalmist in Psalm 42 and 43. It's originally probably one psalm. You see a refrain in both. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And I love the honesty of the psalmist. Why? What's going on? I've got stuff inside. I've got circumstantial stuff around me. But I know you're the Lord. I trust you. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And yet when it, consider, when it comes to knowing everything, almost immediately, I'm sure with me, many of you were shocked, not by the news print, but by the video shared almost instantaneously of what happened in Beirut, Lebanon this week. Imagine the people who got up just to have a normal morning <laughs> down by the docks. And then maybe they saw a fire in the background and, oh man, that's no good. Certainly not good to have a fire at a fireworks factory. And then in the blink of an eye, boom, they're never the same. Their families are never the same. And yet in the midst of worrisome times, we are called to worship. I want us to remember that we have family there. Did you know that? Did you know you have family in Beirut, Lebanon? I came across a wonderful article this week from a church planter who's a part of the same group that uh, Pastor Carlos and those guys work with at Blaze. It's called Acts 29. He's a church planter in Beirut. His name is Marwan Abul Zaloff. And they're worshiping this morning amidst the rubble. He said these words. He said, the people here feel forgotten. They feel cursed, forgotten by the world, forgotten by God, cursed because Lebanon in recent months had already been deeply ravaged by an ongoing economic and humanitarian crisis. Therefore, it seems imaginable that something like this, like this could happen now. So much relief work is needed. So much needs to be rebuilt. So many families will need long-term emotional and physical care. But I believe. I believe as I first did when planting our church. That Beirut's greatest hope. Santa Fe's greatest hope. The world in the time of the plague's greatest hope. Is not ultimately in a stable economy. Or in the dream world of honest politicians. But instead, our greatest hope is in blood-bought believers who carry with them and in them, by the Spirit, the hope and power of the gospel. There is much to worry about right now in the world. And if you're like me, we often entertain our worry with a flurry of, of, of bad and frequent cycles. Uh, we, we retreat from worry. We don't want to deal with it. We block it. We let it consume us. It can be paralyzing or perhaps we go to the variety of, of crutches, coping mechanisms that we have fondly returned to 
over the years. And yet, every time we're greeted with the same answer, nope, it's not going to solve, it's not going to fix it, it's not enough. It's not enough. Even in this time, it's not enough. You know, usually if I'm having not a great day, you can go on Amazon and at least give yourself the one-click dopamine hit. It seems like even that sort of thing doesn't tend to be enough now. Here's the good news from Nehemiah 12. God has an answer to our worry. An answer of sustained hope in the midst of elongated hardship. And that is the worship of God. That is being rewritten into the story of God, having our stories rewritten into God's story, being made whole, and not only whole, but overflowing in our cup that we might bless the world through praise. So the question of Nehemiah 12 is this, will, will we? Will we hide or will we worship? Will we run in fear or will we worship? Will we hunker down in our, in our bunkers, you know, in, in our little walls of finance and freedom, or will we worship the Lord and believe what he has promised? Another question comes from this question. It's the opposite side of the same coin, and that is, where will we place our trust? When all is stripped away, when all those things that we so easily build upon show themselves to be a foundation of sand, functional saviors, nothing more than idols, where will we place our trust? And this is what Nehemiah 12 is all about, which is why I want to preach Nehemiah 12 to you people. Because I love you and because it's in God's word and I'm really excited about it. The more I read and listened to 26 verses of names that I cannot pronounce this week, the more excited I got about Nehemiah 12 because here's what's happening. Let me tell you. It is a record. It is a written historical record that spans 100 difficult, worrisome years for God's people in Israel of God's servants, that is the priests and the Levites, consistently in a sustained way leading God's people to worship at all times. That is what they need in the worry and the hardship. And that's why Nehemiah 12 is for us. So here's the point. The worship of God is what helps us not merely survive, but thrive during worrisome times. Not merely just survive and, you know, protect myself and get mine, you know, take care of my own, but thrive and be a light on a hill, a protected city like Zion, a bright light to the nations in worrisome times. And three ways I I see this pretty clearly in our text. The first is that the worship of God and the people worshiping God, worship reminds us of God's past ways in the midst of our past worry. Worship reminds us that God has been faithful. So to understand chapter 12 and for it to not be utterly absurd, we have to see the big picture. Nehemiah 12 is normally the one the pastors go, we'll just move on to 13. Thank you very much. But no, there's something that's happening in Nehemiah 12 that's special and beautiful. A, A ceremony, a process of recreation is occurring here. The people of God are repopulating the place of God as a picture of the new heavens and the new earth and the very recreation that God is going to come to bear upon the earth. Now, what do I mean by that? Look, don't forget, Nehemiah 1 through 7, God's people return from Babylonian exile. Nehemiah comes back under the authority of Artaxerxes, and they are there to rebuild the wall so that Zion, Jerusalem, can be a protected city 
so that God's people can do what they're called to do. After the wall is built, and on the way to the dedication that we'll get to next week as we dedicate Kempton and his church plant, you see how that worked? Perfect. After the rebuilding of the wall, we have chapters 8 through 10 where the promise of God is restored. They hear his word, they confess their sin, not out of guilt, but out of grace, and then they make covenant promise with God. After the wall is rebuilt and the promise is made, now in chapters 11 and 12, we see the repopulating of the city. Last week, John preached on 11. The people of Israel tithe, as it were, a tenth of their own people to live in Jerusalem and be a part of this new, beautiful, and burgeoning kingdom. Now in chapter 12, it's understood through the work of the priests and the Levites in worship that the only way to be fruitful and multiply and to thrive on the vine of God's grace is to worship the king. This is the pattern of creation itself. Don't forget Genesis 1 through 3. God provides a place of protection for his people. In Genesis 1 through 3, it's a garden, temple, sanctuary. That's what the Lord is doing in Nehemiah 11 and 12. In that place of protection, God himself is present by his word and actions, his promises, his covenants. So God makes a covenant with Adam, and Adam blows it, but God doesn't blow it. God shows up and says, I'll make a new covenant. An animal is sacrificed, there's blood atonement, the very skins are wrapped around Adam and Eve as a covering of God's own righteousness, and a promise is made in Genesis 3. Don't you worry. Sin will mar the world, but don't you worry, because one day the seed of the woman is going to come and crush forever the head of the serpent. All death, all disease, all brokenness, all pain, everything will be put under the feet of the living God. And after that, God reveals his purpose to Adam and Eve. We find this in Genesis 1. The cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply. Subdue the earth and have dominion over it. Here's what that means. Don't trash the earth. Don't worship the earth. Instead, be king, priest, eco-butler stewards of all that God has given you and bring forth a bounty of stewardship from what the Lord has supplied. We see this in Adam. We see it later in Noah, who rides across the judgment waters in a protective Christ-like ark. That's a picture of baptism. What does Noah do when he lands? He does Nehemiah 12. They repopulate the earth and they worship. He grows a garden and brings forth fruit of the vine to enjoy with gladness the worship of his God. We see it in Abraham. We see it in Moses in the book of Numbers as the people are recounted so that they might go in to take the land God has promised. And of course, we see it in David, the king, the man of God, and now in Nehemiah. These patterns of creation and recreation. That's what God is doing in us even now. By the time that Nehemiah, the priests and the Levites and Ezra and everybody has gathered to do this work, it's been a hundred years since Zerubbabel was there. Zerubbabel was the first to come back. He came back under the king, king Cyrus. He came back with high priests. They did hard work to rebuild the temple. It's been a hundred challenging, worrisome years. And yet here they stand before the dedication of the wall to once again engage in the retelling and recreation of God's people. That's why the priests and the Levites matter. That's why Nehemiah 12 matters. Because God's way of worship is the only way 
for us to thrive in worrisome times. God does not want us, folks, to be so afraid and so worried about everything around us that we go down into our little bunkers and forget about the world around us. If you're a Christian, that's not an option. If you're not, maybe it is an option. You know, if you only get one life to live, if it's just matter in motion banging around the universe and you're just like a super amazing computer and really power and pleasure are the two ultimate ends of your life, then maybe that is an option. Maybe cash in everything you have, buy an Airstream, build a huge wall around it, get non-perishable foods, live in a bunker, and, and to heck with the world as it burns. If you're a Christian, that's not an option. Survival is not an option in God's kingdom. Thriving is what the Lord has in store for his people. And so the worship of God creates these kind of warriors, warrior poets who retell the story of God because they've been recreated. Warriors of grace. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Instead, we hearken back to the beginning of Ezra. We remember the prophet Jeremiah. We remember Jeremiah 31, where we're told that God is going to make a new covenant with his people. He's going to write his law on their hearts. And he will create for his people a new and holy city, Zion, to be a light to the nations. So that the nations would look at this city and not say, oh wow, they're very religious. Or, oh man, they're, they're so perfect. Nobody thinks you're perfect. Everybody knows that if we're Christians, we struggle. We have hypocrisy. We do good things, we do bad things. We grow and we fail. No, a light on a hill is there to shine forth the glory of God in his mercy to save sinners who could in no other way save themselves. A new garden planted among the thorns. This is how God has designed to usher in his kingdom the new heavens and the new earth. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Is heaven going to be boring? Well, I guess we'll just survive in heaven. You know, I'll try not to gain too much weight, or if I stub my toe, I'll cuss in Christianese. You know, Jesus will be there. That'll be cool. I got a lot of questions for you, bro. Is heaven a place of survival? No. Heaven is the Garden of Adam before the fall on steroids. It's thriving writ large. And that's exactly what the Lord is up to by his grace as he gathers a community of worship in Nehemiah 12. That's what he's still doing in Santa Fe in 2020. So God has proven himself faithful. It brings us to our second point. Not only that worship reminds us of God's past ways in our worry, but worship resets our worried hearts and minds now. Because again, worship can paralyze us. We long to enter into the new city of God, and yet so often we find ourselves frustrated by flaming swords, keeping us afar. This is the problem of all human beings. This is why I agree with my pastor and brother in Beirut, that it's not an issue of more money or more education or the best politicians or whatever. Those are all good things. Those are all good things if they're used for God's glory. But none of those things can save Indeed, when we look back to the same patterns of creation and recreation in history, we, we see Adam fell. We see that Noah, after he planted his vineyard, got drunk with his homies, went into his tent, and his kid did something weird. It's disturbing. Moses got impatient with these stiff-necked Israelites, and he struck the rock. David, we don't even need to talk about David. Y'all know him. David was sketchy and awesome and a man and not the Christ. 
And Nehemiah chapter 13 is still on the horizon where we are reminded that after all of this, the people still turn once again to idols and failure. But see, folks, this is our story too. Nehemiah 12 is our story too. We're left wondering, who can save us from this body of death? The Israelites in Nehemiah's day would have been familiar with the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah had prophesied that God would one day build a city, a forever city of his grace and glory without walls. So put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites. Not only do they know the history of Adam, Noah, David, and the rest, not only do they know the need and brokenness of their own hearts, but they've got Zechariah on their minds. Because this is a city with walls. It's a city that, to be honest, is pretty geopolitically and ethnically homogenous. And sure, we want people to come in and, and know the Lord, but can this be what Zechariah prophesied? They're wondering, how will this be accomplished? What act, what power of God will do such a thing? And so the point about worship and worry is this. We can only handle the worry in us and outside of us to, to the degree that our worship doesn't connect us to religion, doesn't connect us to rules, but instead connects us to the fulfillment, the very fulfillment of what they long for. The power of God in the person of Jesus, his son. The only way that worship deals with your worry is as worship by faith connects you to the one who has taken all of your burdens on the cross. Can you imagine with me what it is, what it would be to live that freely? To know that he knows my name. To know that in Christ there was no sin. He didn't fall like Adam and our fathers. No failure, no idols. Instead, upon the cross, he took every burden, every worry, both outside and inside of us. And in the resurrection, he finally did the work of Genesis 3 and forever put it under his feet. That Jesus is building a city without walls. What do you think this place is? It's not a holy huddle where we share our cool designs for our Jesus bunkers that we have so we don't have to go out into the world. It's not a Christian country club. If it were, I feel sorry for you because the dues are way too high and the benefit's way too small. This is it. This is the city without walls that God is building. So that right now, in the world, there are people worshiping the name of Jesus as far as Beirut to Bangkok to Santa Fe, New Mexico. It would have been unimaginable for the people in this day, but they longed to know what a city without walls would look like. And I'm happy to report I'm happy to report and to testify from my own experience that even though I have ups and downs and moments where I get anxious, just like you do, that God hasn't given up on me. He hasn't given up on resetting my worried heart through worship. And even this last week, as the Lord lifted up my head and, and I went into his word and I had to wrestle, it wasn't easy. There's no magic formula, you know, abracadabra, it doesn't work like that. But through wrestling and meeting with the living God, Jesus Christ, he showed his grace to me. He reminded me in my worry. Turn off the news, Greg. Would y'all just turn off the news for a few minutes? We need to do a 40-day fast of the news. Guess what? You're going to come back after 40 days and be like, it's the same train wreck it was 40 days ago. Praise the Lord. 40-day fast from social media. Jesus, take the wheel on social media with some of us. I'll put myself in there too. 
Man, you guys. Turning that stuff off and hearing the Lord say to you, I know your name. I have grace for you. Come to me, worship me, and I will connect you to all the power of my resurrection. And your worries, they don't necessarily go away, but you will have everything you need to get through them and to bring me glory in the process. The job of the priests and the Levites, the job of the priests and the Levites, my job, John's job, the job of the elders, is as a community of God's people, as a part of this city without walls, to keep us there. To keep us there so that we never leave that place. We never leave the true worship of God that connects us to the Son of God so that we can be the city of God that he's called us to be in Santa Fe. That's the main thing. It's the only thing. And that's why our worship, do you understand? Our worship is what this worried world needs. That's what our friends and family need who we really care about. Not for you to send them your 10 articles proving your point. And I'm sure you're right about whatever that is, whatever controversial thing is that you're right about right now. And I've got 10 articles, and you probably haven't read my 10 articles yet, but when you do, you'll see that you're wrong, and I'll forgive you in Jesus' name. I mean, that's not what the world needs. Our worried world, our worried world needs our worship of the true and living God. They need... They need to see and taste that we have seen and tasted the true and living God because they are longing and hungry for something that is bigger and better than all the noise. So there's two ways we can apply this text. The first is that we need to be in worship, savoring Jesus, not seething with anger at everybody we don't like and disagree with. People don't need our vitriol. They don't need divisive words and posts. They don't need an us versus them mentality. They need to see God's people, diverse people, worshiping God and enjoying the peace and rest that he gives in the midst of a storm of worry. That's what baptism declares. That's what we declared publicly this morning. We need to be those who are savoring, not seething. We also need to be those who are sent and not scared. Again, the tendency of my own heart and yours is to is to lock down and to lock down the lockdown and to examine Maslow's hierarchy and go, okay, it's getting a little scary in here. I'm going to take care of mine. To be suspicious of other people. Have you guys noticed that tensions are a little high when you go out in public? People have like been randomly yelled at. Some dude yelled at my wife the other day. I'm glad I wasn't there. I might not have this job anymore. <laughs> I might be in the brink, the clink or whatever it's called. So I don't want us to be foolish, folks. I don't want us to be foolish. Yeah, be careful. You know, keep an eye on the bank and all that stuff. I don't want us to be foolish, but I do want us to be scandalous. I want us to be even more generous. I want us to be even more overflowing and outpouring of God's love in whatever way you can, through your time, your talent, or your treasure. You know, if you used to be a big tipper, if you used to, whatever you used to do in the generosity of Jesus, don't do less of that, do more. Do more, because right now is when the world is worried and wondering. Man, what can satisfy my soul? Let him see the presence and reality of the holy city in you through your worship. That's what we're called to do. And so I'll end in the same way with the rest of Pastor Marwan's quote. Here he is again. 
So in the midst of this disaster, what are we doing? We're praying. We're trusting that the church of Jesus Christ in Lebanon and around the world will be a shining light amid all the darkness and destruction. If you're reading this article, would you pray with us? Would you pray with us to that end? Pray because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray for wisdom as churches mobilize to care for the hurting. Pray for Christ's strength to be magnified in our weakness through worship. Pray also that we would hold fast to the gospel in this incredibly turbulent time. Pray that the lost world would look to the living God and Jesus, his son, to provide for their greatest need. And would you believe with me, with us, that nothing, no recession, no explosion, no devastation, no worry can ultimately thwart the power of King Jesus to build his church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word to us in Nehemiah 12, where you show us, Lord, that that worshiping you is precisely what helps us thrive during worrisome times. We can't get away from worry. It's it's here. We're human. We are not the Christ. We are not the God-man. So we do worry. But Father, as your worship connects us to your Son, We know that we have all the power we need in the gospel of your grace and the cross and the resurrection to deal with whatever comes our way, to turn off the noise, to put to death the false sense of omniscience and omnipresence, to know that we can't save everybody, but we can do what we can do here and now by the power of your spirit. So Lord, would you remind us of your past faithfulness? And in Christ, would you reset wherever there is worry in our hearts now? Would you give us the freedom that Jesus has bought for us by his own blood? And Lord, would you help us to worship you boldly and publicly and liberally and scandalously overflowing so that this worried world might know that they are not alone. They are not forgotten. And there is room for them in the city of God. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.